Wow. When I watch that, I have such a sense, such a deep desire to actually experience the way that God created me. The powerful and significant meaning and purpose that he gives. The way that he sets our course for us. The way that he'll guide us. The way that he makes us. When that horse breaks out of the trees and lunges across the open ground. Just poetry in motion. Defying gravity. It amazes me. It, is, it, it, it continually amazes me that when we live the way that God intends us to live, that when we make choices to, be, to use the gifts and the goodness that he's created in us, it draws the attention of others. It causes others to sit up and take note. And when we're doing it the way God intended, it draws their focus to who God is to him in our life. In this Dark Horse series, as we, uh, as we progress through it three weeks ago, it came in discussion. We're deciding who's going to take what weekend, who's going to speak on what. And it became apparent that I was probably going to be the one to do fear. And it hit me in the pit of my stomach in a weird way, in an unusual way for me. In the past two decades, 20-something years, I've lived fairly fear-free. Now, on a continuum of fear, what do you mean by fear-free? I think that's a really important question to ask, actually, because I don't think that we live with this idea of fearless. Like, there's no... I don't think that that's a fair assessment of how we're wired or who we are as people, but on a continuum of fear from the people who truly, in, in, in many instances, are paralyzed like a boa constrictor around their heart and can't even get out of bed in the morning, to the under, other end of the spectrum where there's normal fears, there's daily things that you encounter that cause you to maybe, you know, be a little bit concerned or worried or not sure what's going to happen next. And somewhere in between on this continuum, for me in the past 20 20-something years, I, I have lived fairly fear-free, but I did not always. You see, when I was 10 years old, uh, my parents decided to leave the homestead where my grandfather farmed, and they decided to buy the, the farm that is now my father's uh, dairy farm and operation, still operating today. I was 9, 10 years old when that happened, and what it caused, and, and as a child, you don't know these things, you don't have the capacity to be thinking about the metacognitive components of them, but what it caused in my life was the absence of my dad in a crucially formative period, because he was so involved in the crisis after crisis after crisis that it took to take a, um, an obsolete farm with just a couple of buildings and turn it into a viable dairy farm. It sucked my dad out of my life in a time when it was critical that I would have him. So fear started to work the edges and the corners of my psyche. At the same time, I was reading literature way beyond age-appropriate literature. Now, it wasn't you know, romance, bodice ripper type 
literature. It was good literature. It was the classics. It was the Arabian Nights, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, and also some uh, screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. I remember reading at that time, and, and um, Frank Peretti's uh, of This Present Darkness. Sigmund Brower wrote some thrillers. He was a Christian author, but he wrote some thrillers. Um, and my parents had this philosophy that if it was Christian or, um, or it was classic, I could read it. <clears throat> if you've got kids, take note. That's a parenting no-no, okay, at that age. But those two things, among others, cascaded into causing my life a lot of fear. A lot of fear. I had this overwhelming sense constantly that I had to do something about the crisis in the world, the, the burdens that the world carried, and, and, and I knew I couldn't. At the same time, I didn't know Jesus personally yet. So again, from about the age of 10 to 15, I was very fearful. A couple of things happened. I grew and developmentally, I moved out of some of those fears, and that's normal and natural to do that in that age, as you move from early adolescence to middle adolescence. But also, I came to know Jesus at age 15, to truly know him. Now, I grew up in a family that talked a lot about Jesus, and, and, and my parents knew the Lord, but I didn't. So I could, I could talk about him all day long. I could understand the scriptures. I could, I could even pretend like I was walking and following him, but I came to know him personally at age 15. And I realized some things about fear at the time that really helped me come out of them. Now, Here's why, as we look at fear, and I considered this weekend, I, I just struggle because after living for about 20 years without a lot of fear, a year ago something happened in my life that changed that. And it's hard to talk about. My, uh, my oldest son, who, um, who was nine at the time, so about a year ago this, this fall, maybe September, began to manifest some tendencies that we started noticing. He would pause. Um, he, he, would, uh, he would have these, these episodes, and they were usually no longer than 10, sometimes maybe 15 seconds. But they were noticeable absences where he just was disconnecting from whatever was going on around him at the time. And at first, I mean, I was always in my head as a kid. I was always in some story, imagining some reality, thinking about something. One of my nicknames was the space cadet, right? So as a dad, candidly, I kind of pushed aside these, the things we were noticing for several months and just acted like, well, that's normal kid stuff, you know? He's, he's daydreaming. He's in the ozone layer. But the, the, they continued, the events continued to happen, there continued to be, um, and the frequency increased. And May 4th of this year, which is his birthday, I took him to uh, breakfast at one of the breakfast cafes in town. And as I sat across the table from him, um, in the space of about 45 minutes, he had five of these episodes. And I was close enough to him to see in his eyes that he had rapid eye movement while they were happening. So that Monday, I took him to his doctor who referred us quickly to a brain scan and a neurologist. 
And uh, those two things confirmed that my oldest son has epilepsy. <sighs> Man, when God tells you to tell a story about your life, sometimes it's hard. He asked the neurologist, when, when the neurologist said, hey, do you have any questions for me? I've talked to your parents a lot, but do you have anything you want to ask me? He said, as any 10-year-old little boy will do, he said, can I still play football? It's the voice of a 10-year-old asking the question, can I be normal? Can the things that other little boys do, can I do them? Encountering as a 10-year-old the injustice of a broken and sinful world that he has no control over Up to that point, they'd only been absentee seizures, uh, brief, short. But this, um, this fall, ironically, playing football, he, he had a grand mal seizure. And the fear that grips me for him. Some of you know it as parents. Some of your kids have already encountered things that are just not fair. But you want to protect. You want to shield. You want to guide and direct. You want, to, you want them to thrive. You want them to have the things that you long for their heart to have. Good things. And those are good desires as a parent. I've just been overwhelmed with raw fear that I'm not going to be able to do that as his dad. You know, I think about things like swimming. I've never been more attentive to him swimming than I have this summer. Driving when he wants to get a driver's license, like other, like other kids, students. Um, marriage. Uh, stress induces seizures. What if he's interested in a high-stress woman? <laughs> there are a few of those out there. How's that conversation going to go? His work environment, there are really high-stress jobs. Some of you guys do jobs that I'm just amazed at the kind of stress you encounter and distress every day. What if, that's, what if he's gifted in that area and he wants to pursue one of those jobs? What if he wants to work in the ER when he's older? All the things in the 20,000 steps you run down, 700 different scenarios in your mind about his future. I, I spend a lot of time in the woods. It's cathartic for me. It's therapeutic for me. And I spend a lot of time in the woods this summer and fall, 
not just cutting wood or hauling wood, but sometimes just picking it up and throwing it against things. So it bothers me, people. It angers my heart sometimes. It confuses me. I've heard pastors, none of our pastors, thank goodness, but I've heard pastors address this issue of fear that we encounter every single day, every single one of us, all of you, me. I've heard pastors just sort of brush over it and say, you know, inside the word of God, 366 times God says, be not afraid, take courage, do not be afraid. And so that's one for every day of the week, or no, the year. Don't be afraid. You got nothing to worry about. And it stays at this surface level of fear. And it doesn't help us take steps in understanding the profound power of God to help us overcome fear. And so that's what I want to do today from a position of one who is afraid. From one who fears. Our, our passage from Job, if you've got your Bibles, read along. I'm only going to read to the end of the verse we're going to look at today. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I do want to hit what we've, already, what we've already worked through over the course of the last few weeks. So follow along if you've got your Bible or your phone. Get on there. The passage is from Job 39, starting in verse 19. It says, do you give the horse its strength, Job? Remember, this is God, as Shay talked about last week. This is God questioning Job about things Job is just not sure about. Do you give the horse its strength, Job? Or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. Because of my experience and because of the experiences I have had with some of you, because of the fear that I know is in the world, statements like this one, quotes like this one from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. After reading a passage like Job, hearing things like that, I land in this confused middle space where I'm a little bit angry at sort of a, what, what seems to be an ignorant and insensitive approach to fear and overhear this courage, 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 triumphalism on this side of the equation. FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And he said that in the middle of, the, of, of, the, of World War II. There were things to fear. And so as we look at fear, I want to pull it out. I want to roll it around in it a little bit. I want to understand together what is actually happening inside our gray matter and inside our spirit so that we can have the spirit of the overcomer, which if you think about it, is the moment that our spirit is empowered and infused by the Holy Spirit to work above and beyond the power of our physical self. The moment that spiritually we live above 
what physically we're capable of. And so to that end, if you've got, if you've got, if you take notes, take some brief notes on this. I'm not going to put these up on the screen, but, uh, but the uh, Psychology Today actually did an article where it gives us, a re- I think, really good handholds on what fear actually is, what's actually going on. And what they say is, listen, you've got these fear categories that are sort of predisposed inside your psyche, and there's five of them, the big five. Now, that doesn't mean there's only five fears in the world. That means that all the things you fear, all the fears that may assail you, can be lodged in one of these categories as as finding its home in a larger, more primal fear level. The first one is extinction, the fear of annihilation, the fear of death. So, uh, so, so the APA would say, you know, somebody comes up and says, I'm afraid of heights. Not really, not really. What you're actually afraid of is the fall and then the sudden splat at the end. You're not scared of gravity. You're not scared of of being up high. Your brain is telling you what might happen. The second of our two primal fears is the fear of mutilation. Now, a lot of people hear that and they just check out. They're like, well, fear of mutilation. I mean, that might happen to people in countries where they're actually torturing and mutilating people. No, no, no. This is the fear of the sacredness of our body being violated. This is the fear of surgery. This is the fear of cancer. This is the fear, and you've heard this one, terrified of needles. Because something foreign is going to penetrate your body, cause you pain. Your body's sacredness has been violated. That's what that, and vets deal with this. Military personnel deal with this. Uh, People who fall long distances deal with this. Because when they fall, they may live, they may break a leg or an arm, they may have to have that arm uh, amputated or or 14 titanium screws put in to hold everything back together. Then the next one is the fear of autonomy. Loss of autonomy. Think loss of control when you think about this one. Okay. The future, immobility, restrictions. I can't do what I used to be able to do. My vehicle broke. And because my vehicle broke and I don't have money to pay for my vehicle, I'm not going to be able to go to work and therefore I'm not going to be able to earn money and I'm not going to be able to take care of my family. Loss of autonomy. The next two are primarily relational. They happen inside the church all the time. The first of the next two, so the fourth in the list, is the fear of separation, the fear of rejection. The way that the APA actually defines this is the fear of becoming a non-person in your mind because the group treats you in such a way, bullies you in such a way, gives you the silent treatment in such a way, shuns you or isolates you in such a way that you don't feel like you have value or meaning to the community anymore happens in families. Fear of separation. The last is the fear of ego death. This is where you guys need to know you terrify us as speakers. Embarrassment or shame. What if I can't remember? What if I choke, which is, the, which is defined by I'm thinking too much about what I'm supposed to be doing. What if I panic, which is defined by I can't remember what I'm supposed to be doing because you're all staring at me expecting me to do something. That's why we do a forced community, because we get you back a little bit. <laughs> these, these are our primary fears. They lodge inside us, and different fears hit them. But here's what I want you to, to know and hear. This is what goes on in your brain. Fear, as a primary emotion, is actually helpful. 
in our orientation and navigation of life. It provides stimuli to protect us from harm and direct us away from danger. In that sense, it's a very good thing, a necessary thing. It originates from the amygdala, which is the, the, the limbic part of our brain, which is in the center of your brain. And it actually is an impulse or an emotion that happens in milliseconds 20 times faster than your neocortex or your frontal lobe. Your neocortex or your frontal lobe is the part of your brain responsible for rational thought or reasoning through a problem. So if you think about that, we've got a problem because the amygdala will beat the neocortex in a race every single time. Here's what that means. You're going to be scared. Things are going to frighten you. Imagine with me if your two-year-old touches a hot surface, gets burned, you take him to the ER, you bring him home, but there's something missing in their amygdala, there's not a fear factor warning that goes off, and they don't remember that experience fearfully. Guess what? You're going to touch it again. You're going to be back to the ER, back and forth. You're going to be desperate to send a message to your two-year-old's amygdala. God gave us that hardwired that into us. If that's your two-year-old, by the way, see me after. We'll start a support club because <laughs> mine tends to be that way. And so here I am in this passage and I'm wrestling with fear and we're wrestling with fear and we're looking at this horse, this magnificent war horse and we're thinking, how does it do that? How does it laugh at fear? How does it fear nothing? Look at these images of horses. Go ahead, guys, put those up. <laughs> oh, there's something in front of me. Hang on. Next one. Ooh, yeah, there was a bird right there, and you were riding, and, and, uh, and so the horse ended up over there, and you ended up somewhere right here. This happens if, you're, if you've been around horses. I've had the privilege of working with horses my whole life. I went out west, the Frank Church River of No Return. There was no uh, mechanization allowed in a wilderness pre preserve. So all of our mobility, all of our transportation was done off horseback and mules. And, uh, and, and, and I learned a tremendous amount of horses. The foal, the little foal, does not start out fearless. Not at all. It's scared of everything. Put the next image up there, guys. Groundworking with a horse can be actually more perilous to the trainer than being on its back. Because when you're on, the, on their back, you actually have a little bit more control. When you're tr the only thing you can do when you're groundbreaking a horse and it spooks is let go. You try to hold it, it can be very dangerous. Next one, guys. There's waves. Didn't want to get my feet wet today. Thank you very much. <laughs> this lady's in trouble because there's going to be another wave. And there's going to be another wave. And that horse does not look like it wants to touch waves. Let's go to the next one. My shadow. Oh my goodness, my shadow. All right, the next one. I, I, look at this. Horses will go berserk. Berserk spastic out of fear. In this instance, I actually read the story. The other ones I didn't. I read this one so I could reassure you or not tell you at all. The horse actually made it. It's fine. Nothing happened. But you know what it was scared of? The saddle. It's trying to buck the saddle off. Flips over on its back. Go to the next one. Spider. 
These are horses. These are horses uh, that are being trained. These are horses that are experiencing new stimuli. Listen to this. By the time they've reached their zenith, war horses, that's what we're talking about in the passage in Job, war horses have beaten fear into a standstill and overcome their terror in order to advance into the danger with their rider and assault the enemy. They do not shy away from the sword because they have practiced, listen to these words, they've practiced the tactics of encountering the enemy. They've experienced thousands of hours of facing their simulated fear, touching it, seeing it, smelling it, enduring it, testing it. Read this with me. Conditioning. Conditioning is the difference in the training and development of the war horse or mounted cavalry compared to the natural shying or spooking horse. Practice embeds confidence in its tactics, maneuvers, and rider, causing memories or evidences inside the brain to calm the impulse to run or lash out uncontrollably. Repetitive, routine experience teach the warhorse to trust its trainer and rider, no matter the obstacles or dangers in its course. Again, thousands of hours of silencing fear and forging forward despite the instinct to leap away and flee cause within the horse a conviction of its capability and its rider's reliability. Conditioning. Experientially deciding and choosing to move forward even though you're afraid because you're listening to the voice of your rider because you're attentive to the word of your trainer because you're paying attention to your commander. I looked up and I read through this week. It was fascinating stuff. Some of the different training methodologies, some of the things they did to teach the war horse back in the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s, they would start these foals, little baby, right out of the womb, fresh. They would start them experiencing, you know, the flapping of the army tents, the, the banner waving, the clashing of iron on iron or the wood on wood as shields smashed into each other. They'd familiarize them with pikes and javelins and weaponry often, all the time, getting them close to what battle would be like. And then moving forward, the American uh, cavalry in the Spanish-American War, in the, in the wars against the natives in the West, in the Civil War, even up into our First World War, they would teach horses the sound of the right, the explosive sound of the rifle, the, the devastating percussion of a mortar round going off right next to them. They would teach them to pull artillery into battle and then stand still in the midst of sheer deadly chaos because they were attentive to their trainer because they knew that was where their focus needed to be. Modern equestrian and dressage is magnificent to watch. You didn't think you'd be told to do this today, but go home and Google dressage or dancing horses. Watch a couple of the videos that pop up on YouTube. 
They are spectacular. To watch a horse in step in motion with a human being, taking its every cue, watching, following, even listening to the music because it knows the music is important to its next motion. It is fabulous. It will arrest your attention, most of you. Maybe 20% of the guys will check out. <laughs> Faith is our confidence, it's our assurance. Listen to this. We're not unlike the horse in our fear as people. Our journey to fearlessness, laughing at fear, is a journey of conditioning by decisions through experiences. We must consciously decide to listen to our Lord during our fear, during our fear. Increasingly becoming convinced that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Faith is our confidence to act according to God's direction, even when we don't know the exact outcome, even when our fears are real, even when we miscalculate and mess up, even when we might misspeak and be embarrassed, even when we overextend and lose control, even when we might offend and be rejected, even when we might get sick and tired, even when we are harassed and conflicted, even when tensions are high and results unknown, even when we might have to do surgery to survive, even when we might not make it. Yeah, even then, faith is our confidence and our assurance in who Jesus is in our life. The story that came to mind this week as I was going through some, some different uh, Bible scenarios, it just it overwhelmed me as one we actually know famously or infamously as Peter's walking on water. Every story that you encounter inside the scriptures has a purpose and a value and should tell you something. Here's what, here's what I mind out of this passage this week. The Spirit of God just cued me into it. These 12 disciples and Jesus have done a magnificent and long and arduous day's work. They have fed 5,000 people because Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish and they just kept feeding people. They're tired. It's the end of the day, but they actually have to get up early the next morning and start ministry on the other side of the sea, on the other shore. And so Jesus says to the disciples, go on ahead. So they get in the boat and they cross, they begin crossing the sea and you get, get what Jesus does. Now I think this is key. He he goes up the mountain and he prays and he petitions his father. He spends half the night with God. Conditioning. Practicing. He gives us the example of his own life. And then he comes down and he accomplishes his little feat we know as him walking on water. The boat's four miles out. They've encountered a storm. They're not making good progress. It's chaos out there. And Jesus comes off the mountain and he hits the water and he just goes for a stroll. Now as he approaches the boat, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You are tired. Now you're fighting a storm. You served all day, doggone it. That was a huge banquet. Those people got fed. I just want to rest. No, you're under distress and stress you're worried about lots of things. Fears are already assailing you in that boat. Like we might sink and die. And Jesus comes into that. But not first and primarily as the protector. Mm -mm. As he walks across the water 
the disciples think he's a ghost. And I think that's a fair guess. There's a guy walking towards us on top of the water. We've never seen anybody do that before. What should we do? It says they're terrified. They do not know what to do. They're not making good progress with the boat. So imagine the apparition is just getting closer and they're trying to get further away and nothing's happening. They're immobilized. They're trapped. Jesus, coming into the scenario as our trainer and our teacher, as he says, take courage. Take courage, guys. It's just me. Don't be afraid. Now, keep in mind, the disciples' amygdala is sending frantic warning signals to them that there's danger. One disciple, whose neocortex typically works faster than the other disciples, and that therefore makes him the victim of most of our stories, Peter. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, I imagine this really long pause, right? He didn't know what he was going to say. If it's you, the other 11 are like, come on, dude, come up with something. Uh, tell me to walk out to you. John's over here. Oh my gosh, he's an idiot. Walk out on the water. I can think of many better things you could have said, buddy. Peter looks back. He's like, I don't know. Jesus' response. Jesus is the conditioning, faithful friend. He says, Jesus is exhausted. He just wants a couple hours of sleep so that he can do ministry the next day with the guys. But instead, here's what he says. Let's try that. Let's test your faith, buddy. Take a step. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Can you imagine Peter? <laughs> I didn't think he'd take me up on it. <laughs> and he just, you know, tentatively puts one foot out. Drags the other one out. Can you imagine? Holding on to the boat. Ah, if I should do this. Last I checked, Peter is the only other human being ever to walk on water. We remember him sinking because we always remember the bad things in a story. But it says he made it. I don't know how many steps, two, four, six, towards Jesus. Jesus rooting for him. Come on, you got this. Come on. And then it says he got distracted by the wind. It wasn't even the water, it wasn't even the waves, it was the wind buffeting, hitting him. And he takes his gaze off of his Savior. And he sinks like a rock. Here's what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus is waiting to do for every one of us. When we test our faith, when we try it out, when we move forward, he reaches down and plucks, plucks Peter out of the water and drops him in the boat. I think this is evidence for Jesus being really built. The one-armed boom. And the story gets better. Peter's not mocked. He's not ridiculed. They're not even focused on Peter. They're focused on Jesus. It says they worship the Son of God. Listen to that story for you. 
When you step out in faith into the places that you're afraid, letting Jesus be the, the, the conditioner and the trier and the trainer of your soul, training your faith, building your confidence, reassuring your assurance. When you do that in things that are overwhelming to you, when you put on the spirit of the overcomer, the world around you notices and they notice Jesus. I also don't see him congratulating Peter that he walked on water. It just says when Jesus got in the boat, everybody came around and was like, this was awesome. It was amazing. They worship. And I noticed something else too. Two hours later, they hit the shore and they start ministry together and Peter's doing ministry wet. I guarantee with an increase in strength and faith because of that experience. Jesus questioned to Peter when he sinks, why'd you doubt? It's not a ridiculing question. It's a sincere, hey buddy, why'd you doubt? Always the questioner, the teacher, the trainer. It's what he wants to do for us. We have to practice our faith to increase it. We have to act even when we're afraid in order for Jesus to develop our confidence in the abilities he placed in us and our assurance of himself, who he really is. Hebrews 11.1 1 is a famous faith verse, and I want you to hear it now. It says, faith is confidence, circle, highlight, underline what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence and assurance. When you think fear, think confidence and assurance in my Lord and Savior, conditioning those things in my mind so that I respond and I react the way he would call me to respond and act. Here's what this does. In this passage, in fact, this is the requirement, this single verse that we just read, faith is confidence, assurance in him. That's the qualifier for the hall of faith or the hall of fame that follows in Hebrews chapter 11 and into uh, chapter 12. And so all the named people you've heard about, you've heard all the good things about them in the past. Uh, you've probably read that passage. If you haven't, read that today. But I want to read about the unnamed people the hundreds of unnamed people. Hear this at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. Here's what it says. The, the unnamed who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Lest you think it's all triumphalism, and as soon as you have faith, everything gets better, listen to this. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. I long for impact for you and for me to 
continue in the direction of faith-filled people pursuing God's best everywhere and in every place that we go. On the go, on the move for the movement of Jesus, our Lord. To be like Jesus is a community of people who act according to God's promises instead of fear's futures. To answer fear's what-ifs with God's so what. To taunt fear with do your worst while dauntlessly shouting, I live in God's best. To continue the tradition of the fearless, laughing at fear despite it. That, that passage, that hall of faith ends when Jesus comes because he's the promise. But it doesn't stop there. It just ends in the scripture and it goes on to say the promise was for us. For us, the promise of faith. And by faith in 30 AD in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said to 12 young men, Upon this rock I will build my church. And by faith in 32 AD in Jerusalem, Jesus tells 120 people, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And it keeps going. By faith in 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt, obeying that great commission, sharing the good news, teaching them to obey that all that Jesus has commanded. By faith in 49 AD, Paul goes to Turkey. By faith in 51 AD, Paul goes to Greece. By faith in 52 AD, Thomas goes to India. By faith in 54, Paul goes on his third and final missionary trip by faith in 174 AD the first Christians are reported in Austria by faith in 280 AD the first rural church emerges in northern Italy by faith by 350 AD there are 31.7 million Romans that claim Christ as their Lord that's 57% of the then Roman population by faith in 442 AD, St. Patrick heads to Ireland, and we celebrate that by drinking beer every March. By faith in 596 AD, Gregory the Great sends Augustine to England to reintroduce the gospel in a place called Canterbury. They baptized 10,000 people in the first two years. By faith in 635 AD, the first Christian missionaries go to China. By faith in 740 AD, Irish monks land in Iceland. I've got one for every single century and sometimes two by faiths all the way up to by faith in 1735, Charles and John Wesley come to America on a missionary journey. By faith, in 1784, Wesley ordains ministers and sends them to America. By faith, in 1828, the Methodist Protestant Church is formed, which makes up the Methodist denomination. By faith, in 1843, Orange Scott began the Wesleyan Methodist connection. By faith, in, in 1968, the Wesleyan Methodist connection merged with the Pilgrim Holiness Church to form the Wesleyan Church sometime after that. By faith, the West Michigan District of the Wesleyan Church is formed. By faith, Kentwood Community Church is established. By faith, in 2003, Mark Gorvett and Phil Struckmeyer united the West Michigan District and KCC to plant impact. By faith, in 2015, we embarked on an audacious goal to make more room for multiplication by building a new home for impact. By faith, in 2019, our new home will be ready for us to move into as we continue to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ.
By faith, I want you to fill in the blank. I want you to respond. I want you to go out and change the world. Because you can. He gave you everything you need. You can be fearless, afraid of nothing. Not because of you, but because of him. Focus your eyes, your attention, your heart, everything on your Father who loves you and the Lord Jesus who saves you. Grab the Great Commission and run with it. Our benediction today from Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're going to worship together for just a second.